welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Bush, and I am really excited about today's episode. My guest today is Owen Mahoney, the CEO of Nexon. Now, most of you are likely familiar with at least a couple of Nexon's leading franchises like MapleStory or Kart Rider or maybe Dungeon and Fighter. But Nexon, which was founded in Korea and now is headquartered in Japan, has long been at the forefront of major movements like free-to-play and MMORPGs. And as a result, it's become one of our industry's largest and best-performing companies. For context and converted into dollars, last year, Nexon generated approximately $2.5 billion in sales and currently trades at a market cap of $17 billion. Also, if you take a look at Nexon's stock over the past 10 years, which is about when Owen took over as CEO, it's generated returns of 307% as of the time of recording, which is more than double the market and over the past five years has outperformed most all of its Western peers. So in short, this is a business that we really should get to know better. And I'm grateful that Owen is here to help us better understand and learn from how Nexon works. So with that all said, Owen, welcome to the pod. Thanks. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having us. Awesome. So there's a, a lot that we'll try to get to today, how Nexon focuses, how it thinks about live ops, scaling mobile, how you're planning for the future. But to start, Owen, I want to talk a little bit about you. And to begin, maybe could you walk us through your games industry journey and just share how you became the CEO of Nexon to, to kind of set the foundation for this discussion? Sure. Well, it's a bit of a long story, uh, but uh, I'll give you the short version. Uh, the short version was I started in games when I was in high school. I worked at, this really dates me, but I, uh, I worked at one of the first computer stores in the U.S., and I sold Apple IIs, uh, which you may or may not, or your audience may or may not remember, but it was the really the first mass PC. And uh, they hired me at this computer store in San Francisco to sell games um, because we were all on commission, and the other salespeople really wanted to sell higher-end accounting machines and early spreadsheet machines and, and things like that. And uh, so they hired me to sell games. And so, um, you know, in those days, a game was 48K uh, on, a, on a floppy disk. Uh, that's how we sold them. And I sold them in retail. And I did that in high school. And it ended up working pretty well. So it put me through college. And I went to UC Berkeley and <clears throat> ended up living in Japan and going to graduate school in Japan for a few years and, uh, and dropped out of graduate school in Japan and, and ended up uh, working, starting my career at Apple um, and in Japan. And then... Uh, uh, long story short, I, I, I was at an early internet company called Pointcast um, and, uh, and met the founder of Nexon at that time. He was just starting Nexon. This would have been the dawn of the internet. So it was 95 or 96 or so. And, um, and then I ended up at EA, a few, Electronic Arts, a few years later in 2000. And EA was very 
focused on building Asia and building its online business. And I was the head of corporate development, which meant really M&A and strategy. And so I reconnected with um, the founder of Nexon and a few other people and in town. And um, it became very clear to me at that time that the future of games was going to be online. And I was blown away by what the Korean game companies were doing at that time. Again, this would have been late 2000, early 2001. And, um, you know, I, I... I attempted to buy Nexon several times while I was at EA, and uh, we couldn't put a deal together. Um, you know, the first wow. couple times, it was neither EA nor Exxon. Nexon really saw the, um, the logic of it, but by the last time, um, right before I left in 2009, it was it was clear that, you know, EA at least really wanted to try to make that happen. And so it was, um, ultimately, I left EA, and... Um, uh, and they invited me over to be their CFO at Nexon. They were getting ready for an IPO. They wanted to do an IPO, and we're trying to figure out how to how to do it, what market to do it. Um, I had was the only person who had been a large publicly held company. Uh, everybody else was at Nexon at the time. Were really found the executive team were all founders and or had been at the company since very early on. And uh, so I came in as CFO, led the IPO in 2011. Um, it was a very very big IPO. Um, and uh, and then a few years later became CEO in 2014. So that's the kind of long awesome. story. Put it in the, yeah, the no, that's good. And, and now uh, uh, Nexon is a little too big of a pill for EA to swallow. But that was really interesting to to, to hear the the history around that there. So so obviously Nexon is a very global company with offices all over, and I presume in different languages too. And through our communications, I quickly caught on to the fact that your job takes you all over the world. And um, even even before recording, you mentioned you're in Korea right now and flying tonight um, to, to Japan. So I'd love to just better understand what that is like. How do you personally go about managing such a, a big global business? Like, do you have magic jet lag remedies? Do you speak several languages? How do you do it? Well, I speak Japanese. I, I learned Japanese when I was in college, and and uh, and have sp- spoken it, you know, in some degree of fluency, often on my whole adult life. <clears throat> um, and in uh, uh, Japan, and um, Nexon is based in Tokyo. We're headquartered in Tokyo now. As you mentioned, we were founded in Korea. Um, sadly, I don't I don't know Korean, but I I'm learning Korean. I'm I've got a tutor now. So, um, but I, I guess I mean. The context is the games industry is really a people business, and and game developers are at their core artists. You know when they're when they're doing a good job, I think game developers are artists, and certainly most game developers started out loving games and 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 the art of games, and so they 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 are artists in at their core, and and so it's very much of a of a people business and you can't really do it remotely. It's not like we've got like Google's business or, you know, a factory or something like that where like it just like the AdWords business runs itself. For example, at Google, it's, it's, you got to make games, you got to operate games. And and so you got to be face to face with people and people have personalities and motivations and paranoias and concerns and and families and and all the things that happen and and it's not an automatic you know press a button and things happen sort of business so face to face is very I've always thought that face to face relationships is very important and we have you know the the center of gravity for development at Nexon is is clearly Korea 
Um, it's also where the live operations capability was founded and built. Um, so we have enormous talent base in Korea, several thousand employees here. Um, and we're building outside as well. Um, our, our corporate headquarters is Tokyo, so I have a lot of reasons to be there as well. We have a, a publishing group there. We have a new, um, newish team that we have funded and developed and, and, and bought uh, called Embark Studios, which is in Stockholm. So I'm in, Sto- I'm in those three countries a lot, um, plus the United States, but I'm technically based in Tokyo. I spend a whole lot of time in Korea and I'm in Stockholm frequently. Um, relative to jet lag, I, you know, like there's no, there's no secret remedy. I just, other than get as much sleep as you can, when you can get it, don't drink, try to stay healthy and eat good food. That, that's about all you can do. <laughs> well, I admire, admire your stamina from afar and being able to, to be the globetrotter um, that you are as a leader. Um, and now that you have been a leading executive at Nexon for 13 years, um, I'm curious how you have leveled up and managing such a large global business? Like, are there any key learnings or things that you've changed your mind on um, over the years in terms of how you you personally have become more effective leading a company of this type? You know, uh, you know I guess if the, the, some of the things that I've learned um, go to what the challenges in the games industry are really all about. And I, I think, you know, I, I've said this, publicly, some people have sort of been critical of the comments, but I, I think I continue to think they're very true. I mean, I think the dirty secret of the games industry is it largely is not very innovative, especially in, in large scales. Um, you know, we, we think of innovative tech companies like Apple was at its heyday or Google or, you know, my friends at Uber a few years ago were talking about making you know drone taxis to take you to SFO from downtown in 20 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever that, the amount was. That, that was the, and of course, everything that's going on in AI right now, that's real innovation. In the games industry, you know, largely we're still painting, you know, painting on virtual leaves on virtual trees in Photoshop. And we're throwing thousands of bodies at this problem, at this type of problem. So, and there's a reason for that. And it's not because game companies don't want to be don't want to be um, innovative. It's because it's really hard to be innovative. I mean, if you greenlight, you know, a AAA game, you're you're putting a hundred million dollars down for development alone, and you're going to be in for what five or six years, and you're going to be spending another hundred million dollars or thereabouts to um, to market the game. So. You know, if you fail in that, you're going to drill a gigantic hole in your P&L. And um, saying yes to that and is going to be is going to be a hard thing for any CEO of any public company to do. It's just really hard. So, as a result, what does everybody try to do? They try to protect their downside. Um, and I used to think that before I was CEO that that um, Getting people to be in large companies were not innovative for that reason. That that basically CEOs were risk averse. And and I what I learned along the way is it's it's not just CEOs, it's everybody in the organization. In fact, innovation is just really hard. And but of course we know that to grow you have to be innovative. I mean, all innovation or all growth comes from innovation. But what does innovation comes from? Come from it comes from um, being willing to. To, to, to take on risk and taking on risk is about, you know, tempting failure. And so by the transitive property, you have to be willing to fail in order to go 
go forward and and to get growth ultimately. Otherwise, you will slowly die. And so by that logic tree, you know, the question is, okay, how do you get people to be innovative? And I can lecture people all day long about like, hey, let's be more innovative. But if you're a developer, you know, and your product fails, you might get laid off, you might get fired. And that's a daunting thing. And so I think everybody very understandably is very afraid of failure. But once you're afraid of failure in the entertainment or art business, you're not going to make, you know, high quality product. And as a result, our industry has a lot of, um, a lot of product that looks the same as it did before and 10 years ago. I mean, I, again, I go all the way back to my 48K days in, in Apple IIs. There were no genres. People would try crazy stuff, you know, a rescue, a helicopter rescue simulator called Choplifter or a, you know, a nuclear power plant simulator called Three Mile Island. There, there were these crazy different things that were in all sorts of different genres because the stakes were low and people were very dedicated. It wasn't that they were more dedicated to creativity then, it's just the stakes were a lot lower. So, you know, I, I think the thing that I've learned along the way is that we have to rethink how we do things in the industry. And it's not just about motivation. It's not just about, hey, let's be more creative. Let's be like, you know, some great creator. Let's be like Akira Kurosawa of, you know, video games. No, it's going to be something um, more fundamental about how we go about making video games. And I, I've come to have a, a greater appreciation of that than I used to. <laughs> I think the other, the other quick thing is I'd say is... Um, you know, the idea of failure and tempting failure and innovation is perceived differently around the world. You know, I grew up in Silicon Valley. I grew up in Menlo Park and in San Francisco. And, you know, that was sort of 80s post-hippie generation and who built Silicon Valley in those days. And, you know, they were, they were all good about trying something new and tempting failure. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of the most successful entrepreneurs I know you know, they they got their funding from tier one venture capital firms because because they had been through some failures before. Um, in other parts of the world, you know, if you fail once, your your sort of your your resume is tainted, and you and it's very very hard to come back based off the ecosystem that are in those countries. And so, the the view of failure is is very different in different parts of the world, and of course, at different parts of your career. Yeah, that's a really interesting answer, and it's interesting too because. Um, Nexon, in many ways, too, has been at the forefront, as I mentioned in the intro, of some of the big changes in the industry, like free-to-play or even MMORPGs earlier than that. Mm -hmm. um, and in, this is kind of zooming down our, our outline a bit, Owen, but in um, your 2021 shareholder letter, you say, and I quote, mm -hmm. over the past 25 years, the initiatives that made us the most successful were the ones that were considered most weird when we originally tried them. Nobody was thinking about massively multiplayer online role-playing games when we invented the category with the Kingdom of the Winds in 1996. The idea of giving games away for free and allowing people to buy virtual items with virtual cash was also considered crazy when we first introduced the model um, with Quiz Quiz in 2021 and you also have commented um you know elsewhere throughout your shareholder letters about um you know just kind of focusing on your principles of thinking long term sometimes even at the mm -hmm. expense of short term wall street pressures i guess you could call it and building a portfolio that um also is anti-fragile and asymmetric and so it's mm -hmm. interesting to hear you you talk about what you've learned about how organizations and how you as a leader internalize risk um, 
where um, you know you as a company have also just sort of been on the edge of of trying new things over the years. And I know you have a philosophy of um, thinking about asymmetry and anti fragility. I'm curious how how do you um, despite there maybe being some risk intolerance, I guess you could say um, that makes itself known in most any big organization. How do you foster an environment that still leads itself to anti-fragility and asymmetric bets? Yeah, uh, so so there's kind of two answers to your question. One is about attitude, and um, one is about your business model. Um, but I guess I, I guess the point that I was trying to make um, in in that letter to shareholders and in a few other places was. Um, you know, we all love to talk about innovation, and we all really appreciate the people who innovate for us and have brought great new things into the world. I mean, everybody loves to talk about, you know, currently the discussions about AI. Um, you could talk about the iPhone uh, or the Macintosh, or, you know, I'm going through you know, all, all those things that sort of have happened in the last 30 years or so. And uh, when you're when they're done, we love them. But when you're about to do them or when you're trying to do them, you would not believe the forces arrayed against you to do anything new and different. Um, and I mean, they're, they're really, they come from all corners. They come from the people who are there to make them. They come from the critics and the fans who, who hate you know, your implementation of something new. If you get it wrong by a little bit, they'll be vicious to you. If you if you try something and it doesn't work out, your investors largely hate it um, before you've proven that you can make them a lot of money, of course, right? Like, because investors always want their money to be returned to shareholders. And, um, and but it'll come from the accounting department or the HR department. And, and the reason is not that they're anti- innovation, really it's because people don't like change. And so you may come out with something new that requires a whole new way of accounting. You know, it may require a different type of person and you can't hire a person from, you know, some other department into this new position because they don't have the qualities that you want. So you get it from all, my point is you get it from all corners. Every force, everything around you is against innovation. And so the attitude is you just have to be very honest with everybody about what innovation entitles and, and it fundamentally innovation entitles change and humans largely hate change. And uh, unless it's shown to be like the coast is clear and you're safe. Um, so it's really an attitudinal problem, I think. And, and, and certainly every time I try to do something different or weird, or we try to do something different or weird, we, all this stuff pops up again. And I, I, largely the, the common in our, um, our, our shareholder letter was sort of paraphrasing or sort of quoting um, uh, one of our senior executives here in Korea. And he he was saying, listen, everything that we've ever been proud of has felt really geeky when we were doing it. Like geeky, geeky. Like you're in high school and people are making fun of you for it. And, and um, you know, a new clothing or something like that. But But it always turned out to be right when we really felt we were out over our skis or whatever your analogy is. So that's about attitude. The second thing is about um, how you get a company to be able to position yourself so you can you can do that sort of innovation without everything being a giant roll of the dice, which is an existential threat. Like I could I could talk about how important it is to to innovate, but 
you know, like if you don't have some sort of dialogue or some sort of way of going about this, you're going to get crushed by your investors. And, and, and the sort of rule of public company CEOs is you get two quarters. And if after, if you've biffed your numbers two quarters in a row, your job is in serious danger, probably won't survive a third quarter. So the question is, how do you structure this so you can do real innovation in, a, in the context of a, of a large publicly held company? Um, and the way we've sort of thought about it is, is what we wrote about in our Q1 earnings call and or Q4 earnings call. It was in February and you've talked about it a little bit, our shareholder letter, but, but our idea is, look, what's the kind of company we would want to invest in? We'd want to have something that was an asymmetric opportunity. Um, so by the way, that's also the kind of company we would want to run, meaning you'd have your downside, you know, from an investment perspective, it's your downside is covered. So you don't have to worry about whether you can keep the lights on or not. Um, but then also you've got some real upside opportunity. And We've always tried to make sure that our existing base of virtual worlds um, continues to last and grow for a very long time. So if you look at MapleStory and Dungeon Fighter, most people in the West don't understand this, but I mean, MapleStory, we, we're just celebrating its 20th anniversary last weekend. I mean, this game continues to get bigger and bigger over the years. It's an absolute monster around the world. And, it's a, and, and in the games industry, it's sort of unheard of that it would continue to grow for all these years. When I was on our IPO roadshow uh, in 2011, the number one question I got in every meeting, and you, almost always it was the first question was, congratulations on the growth of Dungeon Fighter Maple Story, but is it gonna go down forever starting next quarter or the quarter later or what have you? And here we are all these years later, you know, and it's still growing. And Dungeon Fighter is, you know, continues to be huge as well. So. These these virtual worlds will go up and down a little bit over time, but then they but they generally are up and to the right. And then and then we're introducing several new worlds. Um, and if one of those does well, we're going to be in you know a solid double digit grower. And if we're more than one goes well, we'll be a whole different company. We'll have asymmetric upsides. So I, I guess I'd summarize a sort of long answer: is one is attitudinal, and then the other is structural. Like how do you structure a place that allows you to do that sort of innovation? As a result of point. Uh, of the point about our, you know, covering our downside, things like, hey, when we launch at Thanksgiving or not, uh, start to become a whole lot less important. And timelines of launches become less important. That's very important for, uh, you know, investors. And sadly, most of the analysts who cover the games industry are very concerned about this, you know, time of, of launches, which puts the game company in a very tough situation when they're trying to build games. Um, we'll get back to some of the... Uh, future stuff and kind of some of the new bets that Nexon is taking in a bit. Um, but I guess to take a even another step back, it's not in many um, shareholder letters or you don't hear many CEOs really talk about anti-fragility just as a term, oh, yeah. which for, mm -hmm. our, for our audience, I mean, that basically means that like a company that benefits from chaos or disorder, that benefits from change in some way, and I actually have the book <laughs> right here. You can see it on, on my screen, um, Anti-Fragile yeah, in, in the background. It is a really good book. And a lot of the, the core premise of kind of the idea of Anti-Fragile is that in order to benefit from change uh, or chaos or, or whatever whatever's going on, um, there it's sort of a barbell approach where on one end of the barbell is the more, call it like venture-like bets that you are making where not everything mm -hmm. is going to work, but... Um, if you hit once, it's going to be 
pretty groundbreaking and cause like tremendous positive change for your organization or whatever it is you're building. But the other side of the barbell is the more um, resilient side, which is basically in order to benefit from change, you still have to survive <laughs> the change and survive the time that it takes to, to make change possible. And in this, this regard, in 2019, Nexon conducted a pretty major reorg in which the company narrowed its focus on, as you put it, um, fewer, bigger, and better products. And so I'm curious, um, now now that we're four years later, what has been the result of that refocus? And more tactically, um, how is a more narrowed focus today impacting how you plan out those future opportunities? Sure. I mean, there's a couple different concepts you're talking about, and we can dive into any one of them. I, I guess the, the short answer to what you're saying is that the idea with, so the simplest way to think about anti-fragility in our business and why we, we saw an analogy there was, look, we're in the microtransactions business, not in the macro transactions business. We're not demanding on our, on our, on our customers. You know, we've made every mistake in free-to-play that there is to be made since the first free-to-play game was an Exxon game. And so we've been doing it longer than anybody else by definition. And, and we've certainly made every mistake. But one of the mistakes we realize we don't want to make is to be demanding on our customers in terms of monetization. And I think everybody who tries this goes through sort of a generation of asking, okay, can I monetize more from my existing invest, you know, from my inv- existing player base? We've learned that that's the absolute worst thing to do. Um, so we think about it as microtransactions, right? Which is really, you know, uh, you know, just we're not at. It's not like we run a ski uh, chalet or a high-end hotel or we're Tiffany's business. Those are all good businesses, but they tend to be tougher businesses during times of economic downturn. And you know, when we look out in the world, we see a whole lot of reasons to be certainly optimistic, but we see a whole lot of other reasons to be pessimistic about what's going on in the global economy. We don't want to have our business be affected too much by that. As a matter of fact. We'd rather have a business where we get stronger when things go bad around the world. And we think that the business that we're in, you know, sort of sets us up well to do that. As a matter of fact, Nexon has always done well in times of severe economic dislocation, going all the way back to the, you know, huge, this is the long-term capital management crisis that affected Asia so bad in 1998, you know, in the, in the, in the early, early days of Nexon. Um, but every recession we've done, you know, quite well. <clears throat> um, and I think it goes back to the fact that, you know, we're not asking for $60 up front. We're not asking for, you know, a major investment up front to play our, to play our experiences. As a matter of fact, only 10% of our players ever pay us anything. Most go happily through for years without paying us any money at all. Um, you could go a level deeper and say, okay, what's a whale, right? Like this is a topic that happens in free-to-play in the West on mobile a lot. Well, is a whale a person who spends thousands of dollars a month or is a whale a person who's really dedicated and has a core group of really dedicated players that they play with we would respectfully submit it's the latter so we should orient our business around that latter one if you're taking a long-term approach you're going to you're going to see the logic of that very very quickly but if you're under the gun to make your number for the quarter that's not that's that logic is going to pass right over your head um so going back to your question about the reorganization in 2019, you know, we had a lot of different projects. We were doing a lot in casual mobile. We just realized we weren't good at that stuff. We were good at one thing, and that was making a, a, you know, a large virtual world with lots and lots of players last and grow f- forever, 
And we wanted to be good at that one thing and make sure that we didn't diffuse our attention. We had lots of money in the bank. We had lots of cash flow. But we just really realized that we were probably not doing as good of a job as we could at super serving the types of people who show up and live in a virtual world where we weren't doing well by them. And therefore, that business, you know, we were we were probably under-investing in them and under-investing in, in, in diffusing our attention. So we cut off a whole bunch of projects. I mean, over a lot of dead, you know, a lot of objections. A lot of people were very unhappy with what we were doing, but we didn't do any layoffs. And some people left because they didn't believe in the, in the vision, but um, it worked out well. And it allowed us to be a lot more focused on what we think we're really good at. It, it really did seem to work out well for you and still keeps going. And obviously to make virtual worlds um, perform well, live ops is a very core tenet um, to, to spur on engagement over long periods of time. And Nexon has among the best live ops chops in the industry, given the team has been cultivating franchises like MapleStory and Cartwrighter for, for 20 odd years. And everyone listening um, to this episode knows the importance of great live ops, but can you maybe take us into the weeds of how Nexon operationalizes high quality and super responsive uh, live ops efforts across so many different studios um, and just different types of virtual worlds. Are there any common principles or patterns um, to what makes Nexon effective there? Sure. So I, I get this question all the time from investors um, because they, you know, because it's new, even to investors who have been investing in games in a while, they they sort of it's a different type of business. I'm going to be a little vague because it's a little competitive. Um, so, I, you know, okay. it's, it's sort of hard-won information. Um, but but I, I think I can be useful to, to people who are listening in terms of sort of core principles. And, and what I'd say is, that, first of all, it's a thousand little things. So we could spend 10 hours and we wouldn't even start to scratch the surface on what makes it good. But I think the, 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 the best analogy, you know, we, sometimes we use the term virtual worlds for sometimes when we're really trying to indicate how our business works. A lot of people mistake the games business for the movie business. They, they sort of use this analogy of, well, games are like movies because that's the analogy we know in the entertainment business and this new form of entertainment. Really, it's virtual worlds are more like virtual theme parks in a way. So if, if you go to Disneyland, there's a thousand things that are going on in your immediate area that you don't even notice that they're doing really, really well. Like how often they come by and scrape the chewed gum off of the ground and how often dopey comes out and says hi you know it's not too much not too little and how and their placement of the restaurants next to the rides and what restaurants there are they've optimized this for 60 years like to make that work really really well so it's not one big thing but it certainly is an attitude of getting a lot of small details right and in a virtual world it's a live community people come back you know, for tens of hours per week, and they notice a lot of little things. So there's going to be an analogous thousand things that we do in any virtual world at any one time. And the, our learnings have come not from any premeditated strategy. It's not a linear process. It's very much an iterative process of, oh, that didn't work. Okay, let's try something different. Uh, and, and the good news with game fans or game players especially in live online games, is they're very vocal about what they'd like and they don't like. I mean, they'll like, especially in a place like Korea, they will get very, very vocal that they don't like something and they'll tell you immediately. So you get that feedback and the point is you got to incorporate that feedback. Um, but I'd say attitude-wise, I'd go back to saying you have to operate it for the long term. 
In other words, if you intend to be here 10 years from now talking about how great your, your virtual world is going, you have to act like someone who cares about things 10 years from now. And again, humans are not very good at thinking that far in the future. Um, and, and then you have to go back to organizing your business in, in, in a way that's structured so that you can do that. Um, you know, I, I, I want to be here five years from now or 10 years from now telling you how great MapleStory is doing and how it's so much bigger than it was when we last talked in 2023. And if I'm going to do that, the last thing I should ever do is try to, you know, monetize hard or push the monetization and um, of, of a game that's happening right now. What we should do instead is just, I have the job of communicating with my shareholders and telling them that MapleStory is down this quarter, but here's what we're doing to fix it and make it better. And that's my job. And that's where I come in. The development, the live development team has the job of building up things over time. So a lot of times what they'll do is they'll, really step back on monetization and they'll say, okay, and they'll communicate with the community and they'll say, here's what, here's what we heard from you on our most recent update. Here's what we're changing. Here's what we're going to try that's new. And that, that virtual world might go down for a while and it'll make all the investors nervous, but then it'll, you know, our experience is that it'll come back again um, at a later date and be bigger than ever. So there's a lot of attitude that goes in there as well. And even if I want, frankly, even if I wanted to push over push monetization, you know, I'd probably get a palace riot internally because we've learned the hard way how, how bad an approach that is. Um, and you've seen this certainly happen with other companies. Right, for sure. Um, one other topic that I wanted to, to hit on before we start talking about the future is mobile. And Nexon naturally didn't begin with mobile. Um, but last year, nearly a third of revenue came from mobile, and you have also seen strong growth, even as mobile as a whole um, has slowed across the industry. And many other leading publishers, especially in the West, are having to to reorg or just flat out rethink their mobile strategies. And so, um, Owen, I'm curious to get your perspective on why is Nexon succeeding here in mobile when many other leading publishers aren't? What are you doing differently, strategically, operationally, whatever, to ensure the type of success that you're seeing? Sure. Well, I, I'd say first you have to think about what mobile is. And um, I'd say there's two mobiles. There's, let's call it traditional mobile. That's the mobile of sort of simpler games designed for short, simple duration gameplay that would go all the way down into the casual world and even in the hyper-casual world. Those are all what people think of when they say mobile. Um, and then let's make another category and let's call it mobile as a workstation. I mean, again, I'm old enough to remember even 10 years ago where what is currently sitting in my pocket in the form of an iPhone 13 would have been called a high, high-end workstation. I probably couldn't even, have, you know, buy something that's as powerful as what currently sits in my pocket. I mean, the GPU on a mobile device now, we, we did some research on this. It's way better than an Xbox One, and it's way, way better than a Nintendo Switch, both of yeah. which are considered, you know, console and were workstations when they came out. I mean, maybe not the Nintendo Switch as much, but, but the point is, these are very powerful machines. And it's both at the GPU level and for us, more importantly, at the networking level. I mean, the infrastructure that sits around all of us now in both the networking chips that are on the phone themselves and then also, you know, 
all around Wi-Fi. And so on, they're so low latency and so high bandwidth. These are, these are the highest end things. You couldn't even buy them before. So you go, okay, well, what's that really mean? What that means is, you know, uh, where we built our business was on PC and there's roughly 300 to 400 million game playable PCs. That's in the world, in the wild today that are active. Uh, that's a that's a PC with a GPU attached to it. Okay, well, how many how many iPhone twelves or elevens or higher are there in equivalent Android devices? Well, there's three to four billion at this point, and so that's a the math on that is really simple. It's a TAM expansion of ten x. Okay, so you've got three to four billion workstations sitting in people's pockets. What type of game should you develop for them? Well, the, the good news for a company like us is we make deep, immersive virtual worlds. They require some graphics fidelity, but more importantly, they require a lot of network fidelity, low latency, high bandwidth communication. That is massive. I mean, this, is, this changes everything. So as excited as some people are about VR or about this other stuff, it's like nothing compared to the total sea change that's going on in computing power at the edge. Not to mention what's going on at the core as well. I mean, um, streaming media and all that sort of stuff. The point is, uh, great gaming devices are now everywhere. Every flat screen has a, a great gaming device basically attached to it. Even my new Samsung TV has you know, some pretty impressive compute power. So if you skate to where the puck is going, um, you say, okay, well, and you look at what Nexon is good at and not good at. Well, we're clearly not good at what, we, what I was calling traditional mobile. There are some companies that are better than that, but we, we looked at that. We experimented a lot. Thank goodness we didn't spend too much money on it. And the reason we didn't spend too much money on it is the more we experimented, the more we realized we didn't really like the economics of that business very much. And, 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 and as important or more important, we didn't really know how to make a great experience that would keep people coming back for a long time. So we go, but the good news is there's now a TAM expansion of 10x. So let's think about where this goes. Well, you know, PC, mobile, it's not in a few years. I mean, already it kind of doesn't matter, right? There's some differences of interfaces and there are some differences in GPUs for the very, very high end. But other than that, there's, there's no difference between a PC and mobile device now. So let's just pretend that, it, there, is, that there isn't a difference because in reality there isn't. And let's do our development that way. And so we've been slowly shifting in this other area. So the casual mobile business, we've, we're not spending any time on now. The traditional mobile business, we're spending on building the, our same types of games, but with the lucky happenstance that Moore's Law has created a 10x TAM expansion for us, a total addressable market expansion for us. And, and so I guess uh, related, just to poke into that a little bit, um, how has Nexon built its, its competency and what it's done well at in mobile. Because if you look at a bunch of at least companies in the West, the ones that I, I tend to keep the best tabs on, you see a lot of acquisitions that many of them haven't worked out as planned. Um, you've seen yep. a bunch of co-development um, happen. We're starting to see the pendulum swing back in the other direction now. And so there's been a like a pretty broad struggle in terms of just like where to even begin in terms of building out yeah. the competency that you're going to dedicate to um, for for the long term. How like what has Nexon's strategy been in terms of just like what type of teams it relies on, how it got those teams in the first place? Um, what's the the story there? Sure. So um, I think there's actually two parts to your questions. What do we spend our time to build out our competence on competency on, and where don't we spend our time? So. You know, early on when we were 
in very much the learning stages of mobile, we it, it dawned on us that the the companies that were really good at mobile were very good at this, you know, at managing um, their install costs, meaning the, the, the metric that they spent a lot of time thinking about and obsessing about rightly was ECPI versus LTV. So effective cost per install versus your expected lifetime value of that customer. So if you spend, I'm going to make these numbers up, 10 bucks to an acquire a customer, you want to get 12 bucks out of the lifetime of them. Well, as you can imagine from a, uh, uh, you know, as you can imagine, first of all, the tolerances were very tight. It literally was something like 10 versus $12 or one versus $1.20 or, you know, in some cases, $1 versus a dollar and five cents. You know, these were very tight tolerances, and that's before you pay for any of your overhead or administrative costs and so on. So we realized that, A, those tolerances were very tight, which are very different from us. The second thing we realized was the expectations on lifetime value are very wonky, meaning there's all sorts of ways that you can fudge lifetime value, and they end up not being true later as you go through your experience. You know, Bill Gurley, the the legendary investor at Benchmark Capital has written very eloquently on this topic going way back several years. And he just, he's really, really taken the industry to task uh, across not just games, but other areas as well about this LTV calculation. And I think he was very, very insightful to do so, especially when he did it. Um, we don't want to be in that business. We never actually, we looked at it and we were like, boy, that's a rough business. Other people can do that well. That's not our core competency. And sometimes you have to decide what you're good at and what you're not good at. Um, and uh, so we, we're not spending much time thinking about that. We didn't do any, or we did a little bit, but we, we sort of got out of them M&A around companies that, that live in that world. What we have found um, is illustrative by um, a, a game we put out. We put out our original... MMORPG, Kingdom of the Winds, the first MMORPG in the world, long before yeah. World of Warcraft, long before um, you know anything was Kingdom of the Winds in Korea in the mid-90s. It was 96, I think, is when it came out. And we put out a mobile version of that. And it was a huge hit because everybody in Korea has you know played Kingdom of the Winds at one time or another, and a new generation was learning about it, and it was on their mobile devices. We put it on mobile, and we found out that the retention numbers are very high. It played just like a, the PC game. Um, and then we put out uh, Dungeon Fighter on mobile, mobile Dungeon Fighter in Korea. And it, it also was a big hit. But we built it, instead of having a lot of the things that you typically would see on a mobile RPG, like Auto Battle, for example, which is very popular in Korea, we didn't put in Auto Battle. We, it plays like a PC game. And we found that the economics of it are very much like a PC game. Well, that's great, because again... There's 10 times as many mobile devices out in the wild than there are PCs. So, boy, we could, we could really, um, we could have a, a business that looks like our PC business, but there's 10 times as many people potentially playing. Of course, we have to play the platform tax, but that's overwhelmed by the top of the funnel, right, which is the number of players. So, you know, that's great. And, but here's what we found. <clears throat> and we found when we launched uh, Cartwrighter uh, on multiple platforms recently, that where you need to spend your time, to your question, is on the interface, right? Because if you're, you don't have the tactile feedback of a controller or PC and mouse. I personally am a PC and mouse person. My, my two teenage sons have no problems with a um, with glass with with you know no tactile feedback on an iPhone on their mom's hand-me-down iPhone, and but you got to get the 
you're going to have to get the interface really right. And that takes a lot of experimentation. There are no real best practices that exist right now. There, it's, it takes a lot of work on interface. So those are the types of things that we're doing. Again, assume that a mobile device is a PC, but it's just going to have a different interface. So you're going to have to focus on user experience and user interface issues. Gotcha. That's really interesting. But let's go ahead and shift gears to our our final um, area of conversation, just the the future of Nexon. Um, and so previously, I talked about the quote that you put in the 2021 shareholder letter, where you said that the initiatives that made us most successful were the ones that were considered most weird when we originally tried them. So I have to ask, um, what are the new weird ideas Nexon is building today that you think could make the company even more successful in the future? The other side of the barbell that we were talking about previously. Well, they're weird in a couple of ways because they're weird in the sense that, so we are working on stuff that, that the people largely aren't thinking about, but they may seem, they may come across as incredibly mundane, but I'll give you some examples. So for example, at um, our Sweden studio, Embark, um, this is a lot of the team that were the founders of Embark, including um, the CEO or the founder, uh, Patrick Soderlund, came from they, they were the team at DICE that built Battlefield. And um, Patrick ended up running the studio until 2018 at, at Electronic Arts, all the studios at EA, very successfully. But, <clears throat> you know, they, they had sort of built up this set of things that they had. They had built the Frostbite engine when they were at DICE. And they realized that the way that they were making games largely in the industry is, is completely brain dead and that we need to just stop, take a breather, and rethink some of what we're doing. And you could apply a little bit of software, and then you could get a 10 or a 20 or a 30x return on that software investment just by changing the tools that we use to build something. So I'll give you an example of something that seems almost embarrassingly low-tech. So if you look at the trailer for the game Arc Raiders, which is the second game from Embark, um, you'll see a big sort of desert with some mountains in the background and some rivers and a lake down below. And it's, of course, a because it's in the future, it's a desolate hellscape. And, you know, people are trying to battle against the evil robots that want to take our resources. So um, how do we build that? Well, normally in the games business, what you do is you have a map designer. And the map designer is very highly qualified, very highly paid, has a team of other people with them. Sometimes that team is in another country because you want to save costs because artists are so expensive. And if you and I were to draw a map from one angle, I, I don't know if you have any artistic talent. I definitely don't, but I could probably draw a map and it would look cool from one angle. But if you turn that map 90 degrees, it would look completely unnatural. So you have map designers, you know, level designers who make things look natural. Well, the Embark team was like, why do we do that when we can just get actually what originally started out as natural? Okay, well, how do we get what's really natural? Well, it turns out laser scan data of the earth is super cheap to buy and you can buy it spend a few thousand dollars and you can just, and so what you see there is Tarif and we bring it in. Then we bring it into some software tools so we can modify it for gameplay. Maybe we like the river to be a little bit bigger. Then you can take, instead of painting on a river, you can actually simulate water flowing. You can simulate the participation, uh, precipitation at a high altitude. You can simulate air and so when you paint with trees, the shrubbery that you're getting at sea level is going to be different than you are at two or 3,000 feet up. 
So you should be able to just paint with trees that that look natural without having like to plant trees specifically. All these things are just simple software problems. And if you spend a little time on the software to get this right, you can bring these in into your workflow that's already existing with Unreal and other tools and Blender and, and so on. And, and you've saved yourself, if not, you know, months of work, literally months of work, you know, millions of dollars. And, and so, you know, our investors love to hear about this because they hear about cost savings and they hear about time savings and time to market, and those sorts of things. But that's not the real saving. The real saving is it gets the game developers closer to the game process. And what do the game developers do? Well, they iterate. That's at a core what game development is all about. It's not a linear process. This whole idea that the games industry is a linear process, like a movie making, where you've got pre-production and production and post-production, those are all movie metaphors. And what games development, at least games that we really love, that come out of nowhere that do really well, they're all about iteration. And so what you want to do is you want to get the game developer much closer to, to, the, to the process of trying stuff out, seeing if it works, throwing out what doesn't work, you know, killing your babies and going on to something new. And the more you do that, the better and the more original the game you're going to get. And so what we found as we looked around for great tools that would help us is actually there's been precious little innovation in this area. So we just had to build a bunch of tools and to do it ourselves. And the team spent about nine months and you know, no one in their right mind would spend nine months at the beginning before you even really start game development just building tools that are not your own game engine. They're just plugins. They're just little things that work here and there. But the good news is you get, you know, ten, again, 10, 20, 30 X year return on the game development time. I'm using an example here of, you know, building a world, but there's a bunch of mundane examples I could give you. There's like a hundred of these things that are just sitting around waiting for a good software developer to do. So you sit your software developer next to the game developer and say, the game developer complains that something doesn't work well. The software development hacks something up that works well for them. And, um, you know, sadly, I, I think our industry isn't thinking enough about this. But if we did, we'd all be a lot closer to the development process. And we'd have probably better games in our industry. I think about, I keep going back to Minecraft as the ultimate example of a blockbuster game made by one guy. And I played so much of it especially with my son when he was growing up, but I, I played it by myself too because I loved the game so much. Why? Yeah. Because Notch was really close to the development process and he, he knew what mattered to him as a gamer and he didn't have a team of a thousand people he had to manage. He had a very, he had himself and maybe a sound person and, you know, uh, and that's about it. Uh, Tynan Sylvester, who made RimWorld, is very much like this himself. You know, he's, RimWorld is a, fabulous game that he's built up over the years and he's just really close and he iterates like crazy and he has an idea and he hacks it up and tries it out. So I think large virtual world development in an online world by building some tools can help a lot. So that's an example of what we're doing. Cool. Uh, that's a really interesting answer. Uh, my team wanted me to ask you about Web3 and I know uh -huh. that you know even though Web3 gaming or you know pick your phrase of what you want to call it, um, is I think still pretty highly res restricted in your largest market by revenue, South Korea, but it still seems like Nexon wants to be involved. Um, I know you've done minority investments into a bunch of companies, but also you're investing into projects like MapleStory Universe, which inject mm -hmm. NFTs into that virtual world ecosystem. And so I'm curious, um, on the spectrum of 
Web3 functionality being mm-hmm. just an experiment to like thinking that it's a core pillar of the future of virtual worlds, how important in your mind will embedding Web3 functionality be into to Nexon's virtual worlds going forward? And um, I guess just kind of as a related question, like, are there any pieces of like what this technology unlocks that is particularly interesting to the team? Sure. So to the first question of how important is it to our future, I think the jury is out is the short answer. Um, but I, I would ask a slightly different, or we've asked ourselves a slightly different question. The question isn't, hey, here's what's our Web3 strategy, or you know, do we need to have a Web3 strategy? I think that's a commonly asked question. It's sort of like the metaverse and what's your VR strategy and that sort of stuff. That's not the question. The question for us is, okay, there's this new technology out. Does it help us make a really cool user experience? And if the answer is yes, we should explore it. Or potentially, yes, we should explore it really deeply. If the answer is no, then we should ignore it and move on. And we ignored and moved on from VR. You know, I used to get asked what our VR strategy, I'd say, you know, the hype and that, like, we have none. It sucks. Um, there's no people who use VR. And yep. my PR agent really hated that answer. But... <laughs> um, they don't. They don't work You're for right. us anymore. Um, uh, but um, you know, the metaverse, uh, esports. You know, those are those are there are hype cycles around that, and they typically have to do, a lot to do with the venture capital hype cycle and 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 the reason. And there are good reasons for that. But we didn't want to spend any money on those. But when we looked at what Web three was, it wasn't like, hey, let's make an NFT version of MapleStory or let's make something like Axie Infinity. I I, I think gamers have been are very justified in having a very high degree of skepticism about game companies, you know, embracing NFTs or um, or Web three into games. They they, they rightly I think sniffed out that that a lot of folks saw this as monetization strategy, a way to essentially shake down their customers for more money. And you know, I say that. I, I, I really I really have a lot of sympathy for the people who were very skeptical very early on, and it turned out that a lot of that ended up being true. I think from our perspective, when we step back and we say, okay, what business are we in? Are we in the offline games business? No. Are we in the casual games business? No. Those are not things that we do. We're in, you know, we make MMORPGs and online first-person shooters and things like that, but where we think of ourselves is you live in a virtual world. That's why we call it a virtual world rather than a a game, usually, internally. And what's important in your virtual world? Well, your social relationships are very important in your virtual world. Your, the politics that go on, the adventures you go on, all those are important components. And of course, the economy is a really important component. So when you look out in the future and say, okay, well, I'm going to live a larger and larger portion of my, you know, my entertainment time in a simulated reality delivered from the cloud, well, the economics are really important. And I want to have some ability to live, to, to maybe exchange with other virtual worlds. And, um, and I want to have some way where I know that the, the in-game or the in-world economy is tangible to me. Well, what unlocks that? You know, a fiat currency makes that harder, um, potentially. And a, a currency that's not necessarily controlled by us makes that a little bit easier, or it can make that a lot easier, actually. 
And so we're not big subscribers to the idea of, well, the reason why you have to have Web3 is because you must, as a customer, own your things and people don't trust game companies and you know that sort of thing. We're not really taking it from that angle, but we are saying, for example, you know, that that what I've built up in a world should be more fungible, should be more tangible to me, just like the social um, relationships should be tangible to me. And so, and the one way to do that is with something that is not necessarily controlled directly by us um, or so completely by us. And so that's one angle in which we take that. And so MapleStory universes are is sort of our offshoot from core Maple Story, in which we experiment with that and we try out some of those ideas. Um, and you know, as an example of, let's say we introduce a new virtual world, going back to another Nassim Taleb concept that you may have read about the Lindy effect, right? Like, you know that Maple Story is not going to go away tomorrow because it's been around for so long. It's been around for twenty years. If you launch a new virtual world, you know, uh, gamers sometimes say, "Well, you know, we hope it lasts, but if it doesn't take off." So therefore, you have a problem investing your time and money. We want to make that easier for people to know that that the stuff the stuff that they bought in one virtual world may be applicable to another. But I'd summarize all that and say, look, none of this works. Not a bit of this works unless the user experience is better than it was before. Before Nexon makes a dime of money. In other words, if we embrace a new technology, it has to be completely apparent to a player why this improves their life in gameplay. Um, and until we have crossed that hurdle, there is no business to be had. Um, so that's sort of the attitude we've taken with it. Gotcha. Well, that is a, a seemingly wise and surprisingly re- refreshing take, given the all the the craziness uh, that people you know talk about with regarding what Web three is and could be, and how polarizing it's become. Um, so so thanks for um, sharing your thoughts on that. We do need to to start um, nearing towards wrapping up. One question that I did mm-hmm. um, want to ask you, and we can we can start to uh, to hit on these a bit faster. Is um, mm-hmm. is there anything that Western video game industry onlookers don't see right now or or maybe just underappreciate um, regarding trends in the East and Asia um, that could go global and are interesting? Well, I think there's been, a, the short answer is I think there's been a lot of um, folks who have spent, especially recently, have spent a lot of time studying what's been going on in Asia. So, I, and I think that's really healthy and I think it should go both ways. So, you know, whereas five years ago, I might have had a very different answer, I think. You know, there's some great folks out there who've been very thoughtful. When I think about the conversations I've had with, you know, Valve or, you know, um, Vincent Pella, now at EA, previously uh, uh, Respawn, you know, uh, the League of Legends team early on, Mark and Brandon, were very, very thoughtful very early on um, about what was going on in Asia and, and asked really good questions. I think that's very, very healthy. Okay. Great. And um, maybe lastly, outside mm-hmm. of Nexon itself, what are you most excited about in the broader games industry? Uh, like a game or uh, a trend? Anything. Maybe more on the, the business side. But a game is, is cool too. Well, maybe I'm completely myopic, but the most exciting thing in the games industry right now, of course, I think is Nexon. So sorry for that glib answer. <laughs> uh, 
I no, you know what I will say is um, I, I'd say there's sort of two uh, answers to your questions. I am hopeful, first of all, that um, the that um, we can we and other companies can make tools that unlock creativity a lot better than we currently are. I mean, I, I think we've had huge strides, but again, I come from this like Apple II experience and I used to hack up little, little gamelets when I was a kid, you know, in high school, messing around on in basic and 6502 assembler language. And it was very tangible to me, right? Like my games sucked, but they were, but they were fun for me and fun for my friends. And and this idea that you could build something and then share it with people, I think, is enormously powerful. And I don't think as an industry we're there yet. I think the tools are still very much too hard. But when I look at adjacent areas like TikTok or, you know, Instagram, putting aside all the, you know, all the all sort of the politics of TikTok, I mean, it's amazing the creativity that that has unleashed. And linear media is in a lot of ways a lot more um, sort of simple than games, which have a lot of interactivity and if-then statements and stuff like that. That's inherently harder to do. But I, I'm hopeful that we and others can enable that because the creativity outside the games industry is, you know, on average, going to be a whole lot better than within the games industry. And there's a variety of reasons for that. One is you've got a much bigger pool of people. The other is outside the games industry, nobody's worried about getting fired um, for the creation that they make. They'll just like... You move on to the next thing. And I, I'm just blown away by some of the stuff that I see on Twitch and how clever people are when they're playing Grand Theft Auto, for example, or how clever stuff that I see on TikTok is sometimes. Not that I, I, I try to limit my, my, my consumption of things like that. That would be one area that I'm really excited about. And I think we just, I mean, it's like the top of the first inning on, on stuff like that. The second thing I'd say is I, I'm hopeful that our industry can make a change. I, I, uh, I think what we're learning is the world is getting much more organic and interactive. And we've tried to take this approach. You know, you've referenced a few that essentially what you tell your investors and your customers and your employees, they have to be absolutely the same thing. In other words, when we do town hall meetings at Nexon and I talk to employees, I'll say, look, here's what I told investors. Here's what they're concerned about. This is what's up. That can be very hard to do in the context of a large public company, you know, because like, and, and I think the games industry has sort of gotten itself in trouble from time to time. Not always, but, you know, from time to time, it'll say like, hey, look, here's our monetization strategy on X. And then gamers rightly get a hold of that and say, wait a minute, I'm your monetization strategy. What's up with that? That's really stupid. And I don't like that. And you forget, it's easy to forget that the customer is the boss, truly. And they, they want to be treated with respect and they want value for money. And I think what we've really endeavored to do, and I think some other companies have done a really good job of this as well, is, is just be, and, and there's certainly some very, very good companies outside the games industry that have had a very open dialogue with their employees, their customers, and their investors, all of whom can be very vicious in their own way, but they have to, but they have to be leveled with. And that is the job. That's what you get paid for as a management team. So I, I see sort of a, a growing trend in that area. And I'm very hopeful that that develops out in a much bigger way. Awesome. Um, well, we should probably wrap up here. 
Um, Owen, this has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed um, learning from you and your your perspective running one of the most important and companies in the industry. Um, so it was it was a pleasure to get to know you and and learn what you think about all of these topics. So uh, thank you again for thank you coming on. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.